0: Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Totally Football Show presents Zonal Marking. This is a six-part summer series to coincide with the release of Zonal Marking, the making of modern European football, a book written by our very own Michael Cox. Hello, Coxie. Hello, Ian. Just in case you didn't hear last week's episode about the Ajax side of 1995 and you're completely confused about what's going on, tell us about the book, Michael.
1: It's a book about the history of modern European football, uh, taking into account the seven major footballing nations, uh, looking at each of, uh, each of them in turn, a period of dominance where they're particularly strong. And yeah, today we're looking at Syria in the late 1990s, which I think was probably the strongest league at this point of any that I look at in the book.
0: And today we're looking at Juventus, their period of dominance in the mid to late 1990s. And so the natural choice as our second panellist was... James Horncastle. Hello, Ian. Michael, only one European Cup victory for Juventus during this period, and that was on penalties against Ajax. So why on earth are we talking about them?
1: Because I think they were just... Very, very feared at the time. They weren't revered in the way that, say, Van Hel's Ajax or Croix's Barcelona or later Guardiola's Barcelona were, but they were the team you just didn't want to get drawn against. It wasn't heroic to lose to Juventus in the same way it was if if you lose to a bit of messy magic or something. It was they will grind you down, they will nullify your best players, and more often than not, they would get past you, especially in two-legged games. In the finals, they didn't really perform to their capabilities, but they were very feared.
2: I came of age watching this team. I, I lost my innocence too. Uh, I oh. would say. <laughs> Where did you um, watch I it? said innocence, not virginity. <laughs> oh, right. <in>. Um, <laughs> the but, two go together. <laughs> but I think if, as a, as a kid kind of growing up in England at the time, you know, the best team here was, was Manchester United. And I find it really quite interesting that if you read Ferguson's book or the diaries that he kind of published at the time, he doesn't really seem to be all that influenced by the great Van Hal Ajax team. The benchmark for him and that, those United players was Juventus. Partly because they always came up against them in the group stages or in the knockout stages of the Champions League and invariably with the exception of 99 would get knocked out or get beat by them and for me still one of my favourite YouTube clips is when Gary Neville uh, is being interviewed on ITV and he finds out that Juventus are through and he reacts as though it's the worst thing that has (laughs) ever happened to him
0: Juventus qualified
2: yeah Juventus qualified
0: Let's have a look at that team. Could we go through and name a starting 11 of, of Juventus' team of that era and sort of a quick chat about how they played? Who was in goal? Angelo Puruzzi. Okay. <laughs> Are we talking a back four here?
1: Usually they're very flexible, but you usually had uh, Pesotto and Torricelli with the two most regular fullbacks. In defence, you had Chiri Ferrara and, of course, Palomontero, who was you know the centre-back you didn't want to play against i think ronaldo said he was the best defender he ever played against um just physically very he intimidating Mark Juliano,
0: but we'll get to that later <laughs> <laughs> um in midfield what kind of shape are we looking at
1: didier Deschamps was the holding player he was supported by a lot of foot soldiers the likes of Delivio uh, and antonio conte of course and we got any pace out wide not so much. Uh, narrow team uh, depended increasingly on Zinedine Zidane as the number 10.
0: Oh, yes, we'll definitely talk about him later. And uh, up front? Well, I mean, this
2: is the remarkable thing about Juventus at that time. And I think one of the things that defines them as a club still to this day is just how changeable it was. Because, yes, I think if you look at this team, you associate it with Gianluca Vialli, Fabrizio Ravanelli and Alessandro Del Piero. But in each of their runs to the final, the centre-forward changed. You know, from one year, it would go from Viali to Vieri, Vieri to Inzaghi. And they seem to be able to cope uh, with losing one of their best players every year, reing up and going again. And that's, I think, um, still to this day, something that defines Juve.
0: And then, of course, the manager, Marcello Lippi. When I close my eyes, I see him. 2006, World Cup, big cigar, looking very happy. But this is, weirdly, like his crowning glory.
2: It's very interesting looking at this era in Italian football because it is defined by two managers, uh, Fabio Capello and Marcello Lippi. And Capello was, let's say, a more cosmopolitan manager in that he didn't just win with one club. Um, he didn't just win in one country. Uh, he could go anywhere and win. Whereas Lippi most if not all of his success in club terms is with Juventus over two spells and I always felt there was there was a touch of glamour about Lippi and Juventus at the time I always remember seeing the players kind of you know be substituted in winter kind of steam coming off their of their bodies and then being kind of put into these kind of fur-lined tracksuit coats, which I always thought was like, wow, that is insane. And then you would see Lippi with a Monte Cristo cigar on the bench sort of already then with his kind of silver fox-like hair. Um, There was a real kind of, I'd say, flair to that Juve setup. There were some flair players in the teams over the years, but I wouldn't say you'd necessarily associate them with playing scintillating, exciting, good football.
0: Well, let's have a look at that. And Coxie, what, what would you say Lippi's philosophy is?
1: Well, in a sense, I don't think he had one compared to the, the sides that Juve superseded as the team to beat in Europe, the Barcelona and the Ajax sides. It was very flexible. It was very tactical. I think it was the kind of classic Italian, we'll try to shut down your best players and leave a couple of our star attackers to do what they want on the break. But this wasn't a team that really tried to impose themselves in terms of possession play. Uh, they changed formation from week to week. They could play through at the back. They could play four at the back. They had a lot of players who were very good at shutting down players more than anything else. So it was I in that respect I think they were um maybe the most classically Italian team of the 90s. The, they didn't have as much class as the Milan side, but they were very good at getting the job done.
0: How does how does Lippi inculcate that kind of that versatility? Is it just repetition
1: on the training field and and having players who are willing to work and follow instructions? Yeah, um and also a huge emphasis upon fitness sessions. I mean at this point you heard these horror stories about Juventus and their training sessions. And, you know, at a time when the English sides were still, you know, going out boozing after training, it was uh, a very <laughs> different world. And and that was, I think, quite notable in, in the contribution of some of the lesser players, you know, who weren't superstars, but in big games would always step up. And again, I think that's something that Manchester United took a lot of inspiration from. You know, Ferguson's best sides always had some versatile... Uh, you know jack of all trades players who could do a job wherever and that's what Juventus were all about
0: and to return to Gary Neville for the second time which is not something I expected to do um, I think he writes about going out to the pub after training with Manchester United at the time and ordering 15 pints of lager and a glass of champagne for Eric Um, the Italians of course even in the 80s when Graham Souness and Trevor Francis are over there they're reporting how fitness focused everything is but does Lippi genuinely like stand out even in that field
2: Well, he had a fitness coach called Venterone who is known as the Marine, Um, and (laughs) he would drive the players very hard. I mean, inevitably, you'll have a lot of people cast aspersions on the fitness preparation of Juventus in that time because of subsequent investigations, but in terms of how hard these players worked uh, and what the setup was at Juventus, they put a lot of emphasis on weights Roberto Baggio for example who well at the end of his Juventus career is the beginning of Marcello Lippi's really and he is someone who always believes in natural talent isn't someone I would say who would necessarily be you know there in the weights room doing his bench presses and trying to beat his record like that but all of a sudden one summer all these new machines turn up uh, in the Juventus gym and you have all these as as Michael was saying horror stories in as yeah just the kind of can you imagine your worst PE teacher in terms of just running you into the ground and you know there being a, a bell to ring if you want to give up it's that kind of mentality oh, no. um, and and that's why again other people have different ideas on this but there was a sense that that Juventus team would run you into the ground they would run all over you and I think that's that's maybe something that elevated them a little bit in this era as well
0: this, of course, reminds me of uh, a former Chelsea manager, Antonio Conte, who's one of the foot soldiers we mentioned earlier. He's, I mean, it seems like he's followed that sort of line. Has he ever sort of spoken about Lippi and, and the influence that he had from him?
2: Well, I think Michael's spot on when he says that Lippi does not have a defining philosophy, but he does have a set of kind of core principles, a lot of which are centred around the kind of team, the kind of spirit that you can develop in gender and how important getting the right characters into a team is, and I think that's one of the things that's really interesting about this era at Juventus is there are Zidans, there are Del Pieros, but there are players that Lippi kind of would bring with him from Atalanta, Napoli, like um, Takinadi, like Montero, like Fabio Pecchia. Um, you know, all these kind of players who are not particularly glamorous names, but he knew he could trust rely on and uh, wouldn't rock the boat and whenever you hear Ant- Antonio Conte talk about his his philosophy if he's got one is that tactically probably learnt the most from Arrigo Saki uh, when he was in the national team and he was a coach who we looked to and try and study and learn from but in terms of forming a team it's always like I don't care how talented you are if you're not the right kind of character I don't want you in the team and I think that very much comes from from Lippi
0: Yes, we saw a bit of that with uh, with Diego Costa. Um, with, with Conte, Michael, you, you talk about him as, uh, as typifying the spirit of of the side. What kind of player was Conte? We know him now for, you know, luxuriant hair. and uh, <laughs> He lost and whilst he was playing for
2: Juventus.
0: Yeah, because it, it was a strange thing that he ended up with, wasn't it? It was just a kind of very, very thin emo fringe and then nothing for yards and yards and yards rolling back down his head. Um, but that's not really the question. Uh, the question was, uh, what, what kind of player was he and, and, and was he typical of that Juventus side?
1: Yeah, more than anything, I think he was a leader and he was very, very hardworking. That's not to say he didn't have technical quality. I remember him scoring a fantastic bicycle kick a little bit later in his uh, Juve career. But when I think of this Juventus, I think of players like him, of Torricelli, Di Livio, uh, Gianluca Pesotto, who you don't really know what their best position is. They can play right-back, left-back, defensive midfield, they can man-mark someone. And there was uh, a nice example of that I found in the 96 Champions League final where they overcome Ajax on, on penalties, where it's towards the end of the game and Torricelli at right back has got cramp and is really struggling against uh, one of Ajax's wingers. And Lippi's solution is he just switches his fullbacks. Torricelli and Pissotto just go and play on opposite sides. And I think that kind of typifies what Juventus and what Italian players are all about. You can't imagine an English side doing that or a Spanish side or a Dutch side, but they weren't. You know, out of position, they were just in another of the positions they could play, and that's the kind of thing that won Juventus so many games, and maybe not even one games, but prevented the opposition from winning because they were just so good at nullifying opponents and marking them and shutting them down.
0: They weren't too bad at scoring goals either, were they?
1: Yeah, lots of options up front. I mean, versatile, hard-working players. Viali was the ultimate example. You look at his scoring record throughout his career; it's not spectacular, but again, really fit, really tactically disciplined. And I must say, him and Ravinelli, their combination play was absolutely exceptional.
2: That's Ravinelli's cross, off Viali! What a strike by Gianluca Viali, that's his hat-trick.
0: Viali's background, James, not, not exactly typical for a footballer, is it? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's
2: great. I mean, if you he's from Cremona, and if you look at uh, where he grew up, the house he grew up in i think you can get married there these days because it's one of those spectacular kind of villas and i think when juventus won the champions league or at least when they won the league in this era um, one time they did have the title celebration party in the in the viali what was the viali family home which was a a kind of if you want to imagine it, it's like going to downton abbey <laughs> <You know? laughs> so i mean he arrived at uv i suppose quite late 28 He'd been a big part of that Samp side with with Roberto Mancini, come very close to winning the Champions League in what '92, going out to the um, to that uh, Total Footballing Cruyff side, Barcelona. Um, but I'd say he was maybe one of the glamour names in, in in that team because we all think of Ravinelli as being one of the kind of exotic foreign names of the early Premier League years but the reality is is this guy he like goes to and this was so typical of Juve at the time they plucked him from like the second division Is he basically the
0: Italian Guy Whittingham? <laughs> <laughs> I
2: think that's a disservice to Fabrizio. Right. Oh, great. Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, to be, <laughs> to be fair, I also love Ravanelli because I, th- I always think he had one of the great nicknames, certainly for me growing up and watching Italian football, which is the White Feather. Oh, yeah. um, And again, just one of the most iconic players of that era with that kind of... Uh, White buzz cut well, it's basically uh, that he had
0: at the same time as George Clooney is doing so much good for prematurely graying men, and thanks for that, George. <laughs> Ravanelli's doing it in Italy as well. It's like a power movement. So the 1996 European Cup final. uh, If you are listening last week with Tom Williams, we spoke about Ajax and that 95 team. They don't win this one, though, do they, Coxie?
1: No. uh, Juventus win on penalties. Uh, You know, Dutch sides are probably the only worse sides than English sides in terms of win uh, penalty kicks. (laughs) Juve should have wrapped this up in the first half. And... uh, You know, despite the fact they weren't necessarily attractive, free-flowing side, you look at this uh, match-up in the final and you see Vialli, Ravinelli and Del Piero constantly running in behind into space. And you think actually this was a really fearsome side. I think the thing that comes across in this game and also in the semi-final between the sides a year later is Juventus' superior fitness levels. And that wasn't something that Ajax were working on a lot at this time. They were about shape, about technical quality in terms of their gym exercises it would be about flexibility but Juventus look powerful and I think although they didn't win the game in 90 minutes or 120 minutes that's the area where they're clearly superior
0: and then after that game, James, uh, Viali leaves, Ravanelli leaves, both heading to uh, a cash-flush England, um, and in comes some lad called Zinedine Zidane, who turns out to be all right in the end, but not initially.
2: No, I mean Zidane would ultimately leave because he didn't win the Champions League uh, with Juventus, and that would be a big regret. and I suppose if you want to make comparisons with the present day, just as buying Cristiano Ronaldo isn't enough to win Juventus the Champions League, nor was winning Zinedine Zidane when it came to helping them retain that. Um but yeah, they signed him from Bordeaux. Uh Luciano Moggi, the the, shall we say, slightly controversial uh general manager of Juventus in that time tells a story about going to watch him playing for Bordeaux and noticing that uh his opposite number at Milan was in the stands. Um, they thought that Milan were going to try and get Zinedine Zidane. Instead, they were very much relieved to find that they went for Christophe Dugary instead. And, you know, we all know that uh, Zinedine had a slightly better career than mm. Dugary. Dugary still had a very good career, but oh, compared with Zidane, um, I would say, you know, most people grew up wanting to be Zidane more than they did Dugary. But
0: Zidane really changes the nature of this team, doesn't he, Michael?
1: Yeah, I was interested in his first couple of uh, seasons at Juventus. And in fact, when I was researching for the book, I came across one of James's pieces about Zidane's first couple of years, and I didn't realize he played in such a deep role to start with. He was almost like the position we associate with Pirlo now, and gradually he gets more and more advanced and basically Juventus shape transforms so they end up playing more than a 4-4-2. They're playing 4-3-1-2 and Zidane is behind the front two. And it's a slow start at Juventus, but by the end of that first season, there's that semi-final I mentioned against Ajax in a four-one, and he plays the most remarkable game I've seen from him. Maybe alongside Portugal in in the Euro two thousand semi-final, um, where he's just running the game and orchestrating the game and providing an assist and providing a goal. In Zidane Zidane
0: Juventus <laughs>
1: And it's clear by that point that Juventus have to a certain extent lucked out because I think that uh, he was always a talented player but I'm not sure he was quite considered that he would lead Juventus to that extent because Juventus aren't really a team of stars, Uh, they're a team of workers at this point but Zidane kind of changes that.
0: And he's not even the most celebrated player in the team. And uh, this this is a line I feel I'll be repeating a lot, but some of our listeners will be uh, a little younger and they won't have watched him firsthand. Tell me about Del Piero. What was he and how good was he?
2: Well, Del Piero is a big uh, reason why I grew my hair long. Uh, <laughs> him and Dave Grohl. Uh,
1: <laughs>
2: unfortunately, I was never quite able to master the... Um, the Dogtanian uh, kind of uh, sideburns and goatee that uh, Del Piero rocked. But Del Piero, essentially, he uh, joins Juventus in, what was it, 93 for just um, two million from Padova and is so good. Convinces uh, the club that okay we can actually move on from that guy who just won the Ballon d'Or, certain Roberto Baggio, <laughs> um, which seemed like a, a a big risk at the time. But you see already in in uh, that first season that Lippi has at Juventus the impact he had, particularly in in yeah you know, the probably the most famous goal, one of the most famous and iconic goals of that era, which came against Fiorentina when uh, Juventus were two 0 down at home at the Deli Alpi and. Uh, they come back, and then just before the end, there's this long, hopeful ball into the box, and Del Piero watches it over his shoulder and side-foot volleys it to win the game.
1: Del Piero has made the run!
2: Oh, what a goal for Del Piero! That's a beauty! And really, from that point on, Del Piero, I think, entered the hearts of, of the Juventus faithful. But they had Zidane, who would win the Ballon d'Or, who would become the most iconic player of a generation. For Italians, he was, for Juventus in particular, the most enduring and uh, most popular player on that side
0: was was definitely uh, Del Piero. Well, he kept going for some time, didn't he? He did, yeah.
2: He was ultimately forced out <laughs> by Andrea Agnelli, but yeah, I mean, he was seen as a bandiera, uh, which is uh, a standard bearer, uh, the flag bearer, a uh, one-club man, even though he played for, for, for Padova, um, but someone who really seemed to incarnate everything about los stile juve, the Juventus style. I suppose if you want to translate that in English, it would be like the West Ham way. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Juventus have always had this tradition of of great number tens. It's one of the great football shirts that there is out there. You think of Omar oh, Sivori, you think of Michel Platini, in particular Baggio Del Piero. And um, he very much honoured that. And I would say a lot of Juventus fans... Even a Juventus club historian would say he was probably top three player in the club's history.
0: And by the end of this season, which is the 96-97 season, Cox, he's absolutely flying. There's another victory over Ajax, this time in the semi-finals of the the Champions League. And it's a little more convincing this time, isn't it?
1: Yeah, as I mentioned before, Zidane was incredible. And that's, I think, the moment where... Juventus really confirmed that they're the side to beat in Europe you know winning on penalties in the final of the previous season it's is considered something of a you know a fortunate victory on penalties but by this point they were really really strong favorites going into that final against Dortmund who were big outsiders
0: well absolutely I mean you've got this star-studded Juve team James and then you've got Borussia Dortmund with uh, Paul Lambert in, in the midfield um, I mean it's only going to go one way isn't it
2: well, yeah, I mean, this is a, a Dortmund side that Juventus had, uh, had beaten earlier in the 90s uh, when, you know, winning the UEFA Cup um, in, I think, the group the year before um, as well. And as much as Luciano Mochi, if you can praise Luciano Mochi for the teams that he built at that time, one of his big mistakes was seen as, as that of selling Paulo Souza. QPR Swansea. Uh, and Leicester fans might not think that was a, <laughs> an error of judgment, although I am a big fan of, of, of Sosa, the manager. But um, if you ever have that pub quiz and you're asked to name how many players have won the Champions League in back-to-back years with different clubs, mm. Paulo Sosa is one of them. Um, and it was a big shock that uh, Juventus lost that. They thought they were going to become the first side to retain the Champions League in the Champions League era. Um, and there's a great goal. Uh, Juventus goal one of the great forgotten final goals in that game the, uh, the Del Piero kind of back heel um, but um, yeah certain Lars Ricken ends up uh, oh, yeah. shattering dreams football manager legend Ian is that what mm-hmm. you're going to say Lars
0: Ricken I wasn't um, uh, mid I think about it he was, he was entirely decent yeah, yeah. <laughs> in his face the fresh legs of Ricken the shot Ricken scores you've got, generally speaking, two Paul Lambert stories. One is that Paul Lambert won the European Cup in this game, and the other, that being a lifetime teetotaler and being told that when you come up against Sir Alex Ferguson, it's always good to have a nice bottle of wine if you want to have a chat with him. <laughs> he bought a very, very expensive bottle of red wine, apparently, and he wanted everything to be right and perfect, so he invited Ferguson into his office, at which point he said, I've got your bottle of red wine, and pulled it out of the fridge.
2: Oh. Yeah. Some reds are... OK chilled.
0: Well, actually, in, in Italy, it is a bit of a thing, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it Maybe very that's what he was very de- much
2: depend on, on the advice he's got. I mean, obviously, I don't get the impression that, you know, as a teetotaler, he was some kind of sommelier who <laughs> knew his stuff. Just
0: nailed it first time. It's a shame. Anyway, <laughs> once again, they regroup. Once again, it all changes up front. In comes Inzaghi. Tell me about him.
2: Super pippo. Uh, <laughs> well, he was coming, I think, from Atalanta. Where he'd uh, he just had a season for the for the ages. They've been a great year in terms of uh, the uh, top scorer race in Italy between him and Vincenzo Montella, who'd really gone, you know, week by week. It was you know one has the nose in front of the other, and Inzaghi is yeah I think has held the single season scoring record. At Atalanta ever since anyway, he moves, and we all know what Inzaghi's like he's a poacher. Um, yeah, later when he goes to, to AC Milan, you know, you hear stories about uh, games in training where some of the more talented superstars at um, at Milan are just laughing at how bad he is in terms of in terms of a footballer. but when it comes to scoring goals and finishing and being in the right place at the right time and knowing where the ball's going to fall probably nobody better in history than than and than The
0: thing is, Coxie, um, being in the right place at the right time, which he so often was, how could he not pick up the offside rule
1: <laughs> in all those years of football? Yeah, I mean, I guess because his um, Juve side was perfect for him because they had Zidane and they Del Piero. In another side, Del Piero could be considered almost the number 10. Of course, he wore number 10. But with Zidane playing that number 10 role, you've got two players who are there to provide the creativity. So Inzaghi didn't have to do any coming short, linking play, dropping deep. He can just focus on scoring goals. And there's this fantastic relationship between uh, Del Piero and Inzaghi. When I say fantastic, I mean on the pitch. Sometimes they combine beautifully. But, you know, gradually fell out in part because Inzaghi's just so selfish. And there's a fantastic game away at Venezia where Inzaghi scores a hat-trick. All three goals (laughs) he could and probably should have passed to Del Piero. And this is a point where Del Piero is actually on a really barren run and hasn't scored for about seven months. And Inzaghi's away celebrating in front of the fans on his own. And Del Piero's just hanging his head in the middle, walking back to the centre circle. Bless him.
0: Uh, and then, then Juve win another league title in 97-98, but not before an infamous incident in their crucial clash against title rivals Inter. Inter were denied a penalty, then moments later, referee
1: Cecarini awarded Juventus one.
2: One
1: politician described yesterday's events as scandalous. The press labelled the championship shameful. James,
0: talk us through exactly what happened here, because it it had repercussions that echoed for some time, didn't it?
2: Yeah, I would say this is one of the uh, most controversial and uh, bitterest moments in Italian football history. In that you have this very close title race between uh, Juventus and Inter. This game takes place at the end of April. It's seen as a title decider. Ronaldo, or oh, Phenomeno, is dribbling into the penalty area and kind of gets stopped by this brick wall that is Mark Juliano. And it looks like a stonewall penalty, but the referee does not blow his whistle. Instead, he waves to play on and Juventus go up the other end of the pitch. I think Stelpiero goes over in the box. And what happens? They get a penalty. Um, and it sparked incredible scenes. You can imagine the interplayers who already... There was already an air of suspicion around, particularly Moji, and by by the same token, Juventus at that time. Um, and this seemed to offer some sort of confirmation of that. Now, LPR, I think, missed that penalty, but Juventus still won the game 1-0. But this was very much seen as the season of veleno poison, in terms of just how bad it got. Um, and of course, when, in 2006, you have the Caltropoli scandal, um, you have, particularly Inter fans, but fans of other clubs as well, pointing at this era and saying, you know, what could have been? You know, were the things that were uncovered between 2004 and 2006 going on all the way back in the uh, the late 90s? And um, every time Inter play Juventus, that referee always gets a phone call. (laughs) Say, do you still stand by that decision? And more or less, he always
0: does. (laughs) And this is why Juventus are generally regarded as everyone in Italy's second favourite team. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> <laughs> well it's interesting because Italy uh, in Italy uh, Juventus are the, the best supported club they're on the one hand known as the uh, Fidanzate d'Italia Italy's girlfriend um, but they're also the most hated um, team in uh in Italy and uh, are known as Rubentis, um which comes from the verb rubare, which means to steal. Um, so nice. there you have this kind of conflict there um, between uh, people who love Juventus and people who
0: hate Juventus. And there, there was something for the people who hate Juventus in that third straight European Cup final in which they get a second straight defeat. And this
1: time it's at the hands of Real Madrid. Um, and it feels like the, the end of an era, Michael. Yeah, so in this game, Juve really don't turn up, and, and Real are superior without even really playing well themselves. Winner scored by Predrag Miatovic, who, of course, later went to Fiorentina, great rivals of Juventus. Roberto Carlos, Roberto Carlos gol! Ha marcado el Madrid! Ha marcado en minuto 21 de la segunda partida! And now it's very obvious that the mood around Juve changes in the sense that you go from this side, who everyone thought was the most dominant in Europe, to actually, why aren't they doing it in finals? You know, two defeats in a row. Again, the one before that, the only won on penalties when they probably should have won against Ajax in 96. And yeah, it starts to kind of unravel. And you do feel like, you know, the incredibly intense demands of, of Lippi is basically starting to drain the players. And you do notice a drop-off from uh, a lot of the players. I don't think it helped as well that Zidane and Zidane and Deschamps won the world cup because they came back really really tired and uh, Zidane in particular had a very poor season and you know the way they were playing 4-3-1-2 was Zidane theoretically linking midfield and attack if he wasn't doing that then uh, Juventus looked suddenly like quite an average team how does it end for Lippi and Juve
2: well lippi ends up uh, leaving what midway through the 98-99 season which i think coincided with the the semi-final with with united which is, of course, the Roy Keane game in the, uh, in, in the, in the second leg in, in, at the Stadio delle Alpi. But uh, Lippi would come back uh, for a second spell. And again, this is a, a theme that runs through Juventus' history, reaching another European Cup final 2003 and lose on penalties to AC Milan. And I suppose you could say this era, if you like, although that Juventus won one European Cup, they won the European Super Cup beating PSG 9-2 on aggregate. And if you look at some of the goal scorers in that, in that game, it's not the guys you were mentioning as the star-studded ones. It's it's Porini, it's Padovano, it's Ferrara, it's Lombardo, it's Amoroso. But Juventus were always competitive through that era. I mean, again, you look at 91-2003, to 2003, Lippi wins five league titles, Capella wins five league titles. It's very much those two guys and as we say Lippi goes to Inter and it really doesn't work out From it's complete uh, disaster but he comes back to Juve and he restores them to success. So
0: we've uh, rather carefully danced around one subject which is Juventus their relentless tireless running and the way that they maintain those kind of levels and suspicion thereof.
2: Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of suspicion cast over that Juventus team in the 1990s, in part because of their association with Luciano Moji, the general manager at the time. Uh, Moji in 2006 would be brought down by the, the Caltropoli scandal, um, which revealed this network of influence when it came to designating referees. But the other thing is uh, the doping investigation that went on uh, also at the, at the beginning of the the 2000s. Um, because if you look at Zenik Zeman, who was one of the tactically more interesting managers of the early 90s in Italian football, he uh, was very outspoken. He was seen as an outsider because um, he was Czech, he wasn't part of the establishment and he said that Italian football needs to get out of the pharmacy. Um, and he He made some very severe accusations against, uh, not just against Juventus, I think what was interesting was that he alluded to the transformation of some Juventus players. And you look at, at that time, how I think some clubs, not just Juventus, were looking to explore how far you could go in terms of uh, the use of new supplements, many of which were legal. But uh, the investigation happens, you have an outcome which I think wasn't really satisfying to anyone, really. I think Juventus felt that um, some of the players, in terms of the cross examination, it was a a little bit ludicrous in terms of them being asked, Ian, what were you doing at 10am on August 13th, 1996? Do you remember how much water you drank? Do you remember all this sort of thing? And of course, a lot of the players couldn't remember. And yeah, there was this feeling on the other side that it was all a bit of a fudge. But um, yeah, it's one of those things that I suppose there will always be a shadow over what is undoubtedly a great Juventus side.
0: Well, perhaps we'll never know the truth. Well, perhaps we already do, but we run a small media company and we're terrified of getting sued. <laughs> Michael, Juventus, um, perhaps not the most loved team, but one of the
1: great teams of, of the era? Well, I think certainly in the period that I look at in the book, the late 90s, they are the dominant side in Italy at first and, and, then, uh, and then Europe. And I think more than anything else, they certainly shaped my perceptions of what Italian football was. You know, it was tactical. It was... You know, result-based. It was about getting the job done. And yeah, as I say, it wasn't necessarily about the stars. It wasn't always about Zidane and Del Piero. Often they won the league, having scored fewer goals than some of the other sides. Um, often having won fewer games, but they always kept clean sheets. They didn't concede many goals. Uh, they didn't lose many games. And uh, yeah, they weren't necessarily the best Italian side of the '90s because of that Milan side that came before. But I think they're probably the most Italian side of the the '90s.
0: Well, that's it for today. Thank you so much for joining us to remind you Michael's book, Zonal Marking, The Making of Modern European Football, is already out. Came out at the end of May. Uh, You can get it as an e-book if you want, or an audio book, or a hardback. It's everywhere. Right, what we've got for you next week, we've got France, we've got Euro 2000, and that means Julien Laurent.